Romans chapter 1. And we're going to read together the first 17 verses as we prepare our minds and hearts to think on the message for today. Romans chapter 1. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, by whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom are ye also the called of Jesus Christ. To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request, if by any means now at length I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come unto you. For I long to see you, that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift to the end ye may be established. That is, that I may be comforted together with you by the mutual faith both of you and me. Now I would not have you ignorant, brethren, that oftentimes I purpose to come unto you, but was let hitherto, that I might have some fruit among you also, even as among other Gentiles. I am debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. So as much as is in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. And then we're going to end our reading there. We trust the Lord will bless his word to our hearts for Jesus' sake. This morning we're going to consider particularly the words that are found in verse 17. And particularly those words at the end of the verse where it says, The just shall live by faith. And I want to speak this morning on what I am entitling the keynote of the Reformation. The keynote of the Reformation. Before we go any further though, let's just ask the Lord to meet with us. Father in heaven, now we pray that you will bless the word of God. Bless it with the Spirit's empowering and 
applying. Lord, we pray that thou wilt rule in our hearts, in our minds. We pray that thou wilt allow this word to be a word that comes to us as a word directly from our God. Lord, I pray that thou wilt guide our every heart. Lord, let nothing stand in the way of the word of God doing its perfect work within us for we stand before the people who are needy but we also stand a people who are waiting for the Lord our God our eyes are unto thee O Lord come and speak direct thought and word help me as thy servant I pray for we ask it all in Jesus name and for his sake Amen I want to begin this morning by asking a question. And that is, why do we call today Reformation Sunday? Well, the answer is, as we maybe discussed earlier, that today is the Sunday that is closest on the calendar to October 31st. Well, to the world, that means Halloween. To us, that day marks the anniversary of a far more important event it was again on October 31st, 1517 that a monk named Martin Luther nailed a document to the church door in Wittenberg, Germany. That document offered a series of questions and related answers, 95 of them to be exact, against the Romish practice of indulgences. And that was the belief that sins could be atoned for and removed through the payment of money to the church. Luther was at that time the professor of moral theology at the university there in Wittenberg. And among those points that Luther makes, among his 95 theses, uh, which expose widespread corruption in the church and various abuses by the church, Luther also added to the errors that he exposed Rome's teaching of a place of temporary punishment for sins. And this placed the deceased endured great suffering as another way in which sins were purged. The place is often referred to as purgatory. Luther's bold action in the event is commonly referred to as the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. With those nail strikes began a period of reformation in Europe among the people of God uh, that lasted for, well, centuries actually. We, therefore, mark this Sunday as Reformation Sunday and remember the key points of Bible truth that once again were brought to light by Luther and a number of other faithful men, some who were faithful even unto death. It is important for us to understand that the Reformation was not just a movement. 
and it was not just even a reforming of both church and thought. The Reformation was in reality a revival. It was a moving of God. It not only brought light, but it brought life. It was a recovery of the gospel, but it was also an outpouring of the power of the gospel. For as our reading said, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The great question that we could ask at this point is this. What is the gospel that so changed these men world? I'll repeat that. What is the gospel that so changed these men, touched of God, and through them the world? Well, I'm going to suggest to you an answer here. This is my subject. This is my proposition. This is what I would seek to prove. First, I would point this out, that the gospel is not a doctrine, nor is it a distinctive. The gospel is not a point of a confession or a tenet of a catechism. More bluntly, the gospel is not a how or a why. The gospel is a who. I want you to see that. Because I think that is a point that is so confused. Even in this day. The gospel is not a how. The gospel is not a why. The gospel is a who. That was the truth that started the Reformation. Rome was and has always been filled with hows and whys. Rome's exaltation of her means and methods of obtaining favor with God, of removing sin, all of Rome's methods, well, to Luther, proved to be worthless, for indeed they are. All proved meaningless all proved powerless to meet the first need of his soul. This morning, I am going to consider with you, well, to put it in today's terms, the way people like to say it today, we're going to consider briefly Luther's journey. I only have two points, but I think when you notice what Luther went through, you might say, you know what? That's common to everybody. So I want you to think with me first on what I am calling the torment of sins exposed. The torment of sins exposed. Luther, before he came to know the truth of the gospel, was a man that was extraordinarily tormented in his mind, in his heart, in all of his being. And some would even say that Luther's torment of soul was excessive and extreme. However, his torment for sin was not a product of his emotional makeup. Nor was it a product of his deficiencies. Luther's 
torment of heart and soul was a product of how clearly his sins were made known to him by the Lord. Luther got a real good look at what he was, who he was, and who God was. And it tormented him. Luther's adult life began with a study to be a lawyer. However, through a series of, of events, some of which brought him face to face with death, he began to be terrified at the prospect of death without knowing that all was well with God. And so in an effort to settle this terror, he left the studying of the law and turned his attention to the church where he soon became a monk. Perhaps his mind was this way. Perhaps a life given to God would bring peace of mind and heart. I think that was his thought. If I enter into the church, I certainly will find that peace that I so desire. But quite the opposite was true. For upon entering the church and going through the various aspects of church life, Luther soon found that his torment was even greater. He found this to be true. And see if this rings a bell with any of us. Living the right life was no bringing of a right heart or assurance. That is still true. Living the right life was no bringing of a right heart or assurance of any standing with God that is good. Well, as a result, Luther began a life of self-affliction to try to put his sinful heart to death and prove his earnestness to God. Luther was one who practiced whipping himself. He went through extended hours of laying prostrate before God. He took pilgrimages to sacred places, including Rome, which, by the, way, by the way, he was aghast at the corruption that he saw there. Far from being an encouragement to his soul, Rome actually became a compounding of the torment that he knew. In fact, I would say this, Rome has always invented all kinds of ways and means to deal with the exposure of sin in the lives of the people within the church, none of which are the answer. Rather, I would say this, Rome's inventions are all a way of keeping a hold on its people. Well, we can have you assuage all of your torment by the confession. Or maybe we can have you do penance. Or maybe we can have you observe certain days. Or maybe we can have you go on a certain mission of some sort. All these are outward ways that Rome would say, here, these are ways in which you can reform, transform, conform your life so that now you'll know things are right with God. Well, Luther was perhaps Rome's, in the history of Rome, the Roman church, there probably was not one who observed all of these things more fastidiously 
completely and carefully as Martin Luther. He performed everything that Rome said, this is the prescription to peace. But again, it left him all the more tormented of mind and soul. All he saw was his sinfulness and the inability to be rid of its guilt. Hear me. Luther concluded that there were no marks of his soul being saved. He couldn't see in himself a single reason for hope. But the opposite. He saw only reasons for damnation. I present this to you about Martin Luther because I believe what Luther went through is an extraordinarily common response. In fact, a very natural way of responding when sins are exposed to the heart. And I would say to you very plainly that many in the church today suffer from the same malady. I don't see the marks of a soul saved. Therefore, there is no peace. There is but torment. It is as if it can be said, I can see my sin and sinfulness. I can see the fruit of sin in me. I don't see the fruit of righteousness. What I see is the fruit of sin in me. I find in myself a heart ready to do what is not at all what marks a true believer. And so, the next conclusion, and I say this does haunt so many. My, my lack of possessing the marks of a Christian shows me that I must be lost. And I say, we see this as an immense problem among believers today. A number of years ago, I remember hearing Dr. Cairns talking about this subject. And he said, you know, this particular problem leads many to what we have to call Protestant penance. That is, that we earn relief for our souls by filling the life with so-called evidences. I do this, I do that. I read this, I leave off that. I pray this over and over, so on and so forth. Some suffering with this torment as Luther did, point to scripture such as Philippians 2 and verse 12, which says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. See? You are supposed to then go and judge yourself to see if there is the marks of salvation in you. It would seem that the thought presented is that every Christian should give himself to thorough searching to determine if the character of his life is truly in line with the scripture and what it says marks the true believer. 
Examine yourself. Well, I will examine Philippians 2 more in just a moment. But I'm going to say something emphatically. Because it just seems that sometimes when you deal with subjects like this that are very sensitive to the heart, things don't get heard the way that they are meant or really said. Am I saying this morning, and using Luther as an example, am I saying that believers should not consider how things stand with God? Not at all. Not at all. But that is not the subject that we are dealing with here. The scripture does tell us, and I emphatically support that we should look at ourselves as was prayed by the psalmist in Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart, and try me, and know my thoughts, and see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Should we all be ready to lay our hearts open before the Lord and deal with sin? Well, the answer to that is absolutely yes. But the question on this whole matter, the, this side track that sometimes we get taken down, we search our hearts, but for what purpose? For what purpose? The reason that we present our hearts to the Lord to search us out is because we know we believe. I want to be close to Christ. Now, let me, you have your bulletin. And in this bulletin, Spurgeon makes a statement in his morning by morning. I'm just going to read this. Uh, just a sentence. The man who is really forgiven is not anxious to offend again. The possession of justification leads to an anxious desire for sanctification. Forgive us our debts is that justification. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That is sanctification in its negative and positive forms. Spurgeon is simply saying, because you are alive, because you are justified, because you are believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, there is a response in you that will want to be close to the Lord. You will want to know that all things are well, and you will be ready to confess and to turn and to repent. That is the purpose. It's because of what you know of Christ and his being in you that causes you to search. Now, you say, how is that different what you're saying? Here's the difference. The subject at hand is this. Are we called on to judge ourselves as meeting or failing to have the marks of a believer as a means of proving that we are in fact saved? Does God call upon us to go judge yourself? to see if you have the things that prove that you are in Christ. Luther 
was plagued by this line of thinking. That was his controversy. That was his torment. He held in his mind, I am to prove that in myself are evidences that I am saved. I must see them in myself. And so Luther judged himself and could find nothing but fear and failure. The torment was relentless. Why? Let me ask this question. What is the exercise to determine this issue really? When we judge ourselves to see, do I see all the things that prove to me that I'm in Christ? I'm going to go out there and judge and I'm going to consider what is that exercise really? Well, I suggest to you two things. Number one, it is an attempt to bring yourself to the place where you are satisfied with yourself. You want the peace that you approve of you. That is really the issue. To, to have that mind is for us to say, well, I'm finally satisfied with who I am, what I am. I see these things, therefore I am now at peace because I am satisfied with me. But I also I want you to understand this. If you go through that exercise, I've seen all the marks of salvation in me, I am satisfied, I have peace, I'm here to tell you that that evaluation does not last. You may convince yourself that you are okay today, and tomorrow your heart or Satan shows you that some, there's something you didn't think of, and now you're lost again. By the way, let me mention this to you. No man who ever goes through this exercise ever convinces himself of anything other than that he's lost. You never come to the conclusion that everything's right. You'll never, you'll never get there. The Lord brought Luther, suffering as he was, to the words of our text. And as you know, these words changed everything for Luther. The, the text, the truth seen here not only changed Luther, but it became the keynote of the Reformation. It was the theme of the longest revival ever known. You say, what was that again? The just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. There is torment in sin exposed. And even as you go to examine yourself, you are going to uncover nothing but failures and faults and fears. You're never, and you go through that exercise of self-evaluation to see if you see the marks of a believer in you, you're never going to see one, I don't think. You're never going to see one as it should be. The devil will say, oh yeah, well, I see kindness. I think I see kindness. Well, you're not kind the way you're supposed to be. Well, I see um, holiness. Well, you're not holy the way you're supposed to be. You'll never see a positive. All you'll see will be the negatives. 
and you'll only ever convince yourself that you're lost. There's torment, again, that is the testimony of Martin Luther. He was tormented because he found himself going through that exercise. Now, I want to come to my second point, and that is the peace of sins atoned. The peace of sins atoned. I'm going to begin this point by asking this question. In the exercise of examination in the way in which Luther engaged, and many of us, where was or is the focus? What was his heart and maybe ours? What is the heart and mind trained on as the search is made for the marks of a truly saved soul? What are you looking at? Or maybe I should put it this way. What are you trying to draw your peace from? What is it? Can you answer that with me? Luther came to see, as Luther was reading through the book of Romans, and this verse jumped out at him, the truth came to him plainly. He saw there is absolutely nothing in rituals, there is nothing in works. There was nothing and is nothing in the character of the believer that brings peace. Here is the test. Here is what you are to answer. Here is the answer for what you are to evaluate. Do I believe on the Lord Jesus? The just shall live by faith. Do I believe on the Lord Jesus? Further, do I believe that for every sin that I can see in my long train of iniquitous failures, do I believe that Christ has the answer for that? Do I believe in his paying for whatever I can never pay for? Do you see that there's a change of the attention? There's a change of what's being examined. There's a change of evaluation. There's a change in the whole approach to the subject. The just shall live by faith. Faith. The answer to the condemnation that we see in ourselves of sin is faith. I don't look at me. I don't look for my own estimations of my saving traits. I look to Jesus. I look to Jesus. I find that he answers for all these things that the devil can lay out before me, that my mind can 
I, for every single component, for every handwriting of ordinances, which is against me, for every single thing that I could ever list as a reason why I am not one who can say they're saved, Christ has the answer. Does not the scripture say, Isaiah 45, verse 22, look unto me, look unto me, and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is none else. Let me put it this way, there is no other answer for sin. Your answer for sin is in the person of the Lord Jesus. The gospel, as I said, is not a how, it's not a why. I'm saved because the why is I seem to be evidencing all the good things. It's not a how, it's not a why, the gospel is a who. I trust him. I trust his work. I trust what he imputes to me. I am completely, utterly, thoroughly righteous in the sight of God. I am now seated in heavenly places because I am looking to him. My faith is upon him. It has nothing to do with my observance of these rituals, of these ceremonies, of these rites, of all these good things that perhaps I could say are characteristics. Let me read another scripture to you. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Wherefore, seeing we are also compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight. Yeah, there's, let's put away the sin. Let's lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Now I'm going to insert a word here. How? How? How do I put this away and how do I run? Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Notice the things that Christ goes through. These are things that perhaps you and I would conclude, well, I should be going through these. He endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds, lest you become like a tormented Luther, lest you, be, lest you become like one who says, well, I don't see what I need to see. I must be lost. Don't go there. Your mind and heart is to be fixed on Christ and his work. Do you believe on Christ? The just, the righteous, the pure ones, the accepted ones. Live by faith. Faith in who? Faith in Christ. As I was sitting in my study, sometimes I get funny thoughts and, and silly things come to my mind. But sometimes they make a good point. So I... I thought, well, I'll share this. And this is silly, yes, but I was thinking about back in that day when Israel was rebellious in the desert. Now, how many things could you list of Israel that were commendable, that showed the marks of salvation, as it were? I say you'd be hard-pressed to find them. So there was the one incident where you had the Lord sent the fiery serpents among the people. And then you see the answer to that, of course, was that Moses 
put the brazen serpent upon the pole and that everyone that looked everyone that looked lived my mind was thinking as I, in, in this context of what we're dealing with here it kind of brought this to my mind that you have a man who's been bitten by the serpent and there he lies and his good friend his caring friend his sensible friend comes to him and says look look to the brazen serpent but the man says in response to his friend I can't I must examine myself to see if I have all the symptoms of a truly healthy man. Um, so the friend responds, you don't. You're poisoned. Look. Can you see somewhat of what I'm trying to say here? You and I sometimes allow ourselves to fall into that mindset. I have to see all the symptoms of a healthy man. I have to see all the symptoms of a saved man in order. No, 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 no. You will never find them. You are poisoned. You are fallen. You are full of sin. The old man still reigns inside of you in many, many ways. You're not going to see these things that you're looking for. You're not going to come to that place. Look away. Look, look, look to Jesus. Considering him, there's the answer to this whole thing. I rest on him, Jesus, I am resting, resting in the joy of what thou art. So I said I would come back to Philippians chapter 2. I will do this. Now I'm going to just answer a couple of questions about some of these things that we hear quoted as the proof that, no, 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 you're supposed to go through this exercise. What is what about Philippians chapter 2 verse 12? My point to you this morning is I want you to read with me what's around it. Read with me what is around it. Philippians chapter 2, we're going to begin reading at verse 9. And I want you to keep in your mind the whole way through who is the primary subject? What is primarily being presented. Verse 9. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth that at that I mean, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father wherefore in the light of what I just said my beloved as ye have always obeyed not in my presence only but now much more in my absence work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Okay, I'm going to just list for you some things for you to think about with me. This scripture, this statement, 
Where are we called in our attention? We read verses 9 through 13. Where are you called in your mind and heart to think? My point is this. The Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus. So everything that's in this portion has its context, carries its meaning in the light of the presentation of an exalted Christ. Verse 12 begins with the word wherefore. Because of what God is doing for Christ and to us through Christ, we, because of this truth, just said, do what is now said. Obey. And not only obey while I'm with you, but even when I'm not with you. Verse 13, I want you to ask this question of yourself, given the context and what verse 13 says, which immediately follows the phrase that so many take. Verse 13, where is the power to deal with the wagon train of sins that we notice and do those things that mark us as believers? Where does the power to deal with that come? Self, read verse 13 again. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. To do the things that mark you as belonging to Christ. It is God that works out your sanctification. So, let's then jump to that phrase that seems to be saying the opposite. Work out your own salvation. Now that doesn't sound like God working. That sounds like you and me working. We're to do something. We're to jump out there and uh, do some drastic actions spiritually. At least it would seem that way. What does that mean? I think this. And I'm taking this as a thought that I glean from a well-known New Testament commentator, Hadley Moole. The comment is, Paul is saying not to do what they do in his presence only. Not to do or show faith in the Lord in his presence only. But on your own, without me, develop and there's the word work. Develop your own spiritual safety, health, and joy with carefulness. That's how he translates that. But then he makes this comment. Not with the tortures of misgiving. Not driven by shrinking dread of your gracious God. But, by, but drawn by a tender reverence and solemn watchfulness. Lest you should grieve the eternal love. Yes, work out your own salvation. Do not depend on me, Paul's saying. Don't depend on me. You work it out for yourself. Take your own souls in hand and a faith and love which look without the least earthly 
intermediation straight to God and to him alone. Don't lean on just following what Paul says, but in your own minds and in your own hearts. Look to Christ. Lean on Christ. Follow this one that we have just presented that God has exalted. God will do a work in you. It is his place to bring you to will, but it's also his place to work these things out in you. Your place then, dear Philippians, you get involved even though I'm not here with you. And I say, again, it's exactly the opposite of that common thought. Oh, I need to take myself in hand. I need to open all the leaves of the book and I need to read through and see. What I, no, 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 no. Look yourselves to this one who is given of God, who is exalted of God. And the Lord will be doing a work in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. These things that mark you, God will produce those things as you by faith continual, continually set your mind and heart of love on Jesus Christ. Well, let's go to another. Let's go to another text that seems to be out there as a contradiction to what I'm saying. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 13. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. I'm going to read, though, for you a couple verses before that verse. Paul is saying to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 13, verse 3, Since ye seek a proof of Christ speaking in me. Note that. Since ye seek a proof of Christ speaking in me, which to you word is not weak, but is mighty in you. In other words, Paul is saying, I'm speaking to you, and the effects of my speaking to you, God is doing something with what I'm saying to you in your hearts. And it's not a weak thing, it's a mighty thing. For though he was crucified through weakness, yet he liveth by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God to you, or toward you. Examine yourselves, whether ye be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves, how that Christ Jesus is in you, except ye be reprobates? Say, so what's the point? Here's the context here. We are told in these verses to examine. Examine yourselves, whether ye be in the faith. Prove your own selves. But here's the context. Point number one. Verse three says, you seek proof of what I am saying. Or, in other words, you seek proof of authority that I have in what I'm saying about the things that I've spoken to you so far. You want to know how is it that Paul can say these things and we are to receive them. Well, Paul again says, these words that I've spoken to you, they are mighty in you. In other words, there's something in you that speaks to your heart that I'm speaking the truth. You have something inside of you when you're in Christ that says what I am say, saying to you is true and you need to give heed to. There's what Paul 
is saying, examine yourselves, then is this. You would prove me, Paul says, prove yourselves. Prove yourselves. Seek the proof of what I'm saying in your own hearts. Does your heart say what I'm saying makes sense, that this is right, that this is of God? Do you have the witness of the Spirit of God within yourselves that says what I'm saying to you? You want me to prove my authority. Well, one of the things that proves my authority is what's going on in your own hearts. How you're receiving what I'm saying. Charles Hodge makes a statement. True faith always shows itself. How does your heart respond to truth? There is the subject of 2 Corinthians 13. What is the test? What is the test that Luther had to go through? What is it the, te the test that delivered him from the torment of sins exposed and brought him into the peace of sins atoned? What was it? What was the test that was indeed for millions then the keynote of the Reformation is the test how do you look to yourself in your own eyes is that the test of whether you're in Christ how do you look to yourself in your own eyes or is it how does Jesus Christ look to you how does your your heart respond to that question do I really believe in Christ and in his work. Paul's argument then to the Corinthians was this. If Christ is in you, you know what I'm saying is true. You know what I'm saying to you in the book of 2 Corinthians. This is all true. You want to contest with me whether I have authority to say this to you? It bears itself out even in your own hearts, doesn't it? Paul's argument if Christ is in you, you know what I'm saying is true. Well, I'm going to just take one more little interpretive thing here and examine Scripture. What about Paul? What about Paul? Uh, you know, Paul uh, makes the statement, does he not, to Timothy that he was a terrible, terrible, terrible sinner and all the things that he could ever see in himself that were wrong. Well, he did it before he was saved. And now things are different since he's saved. So Paul, as an example, then, of the subject at hand, that he ex you, you see what was in you, now you, you can evaluate what you are now. Wasn't Paul one that could claim that he had the marks of the believer? My statement to you is Paul's testimony to Timothy was that he is just exactly the same as you and I. 1 Timothy 1.15 This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. I want you to see one very important word in that sentence. Paul does not say that he came into the world to save sinners of whom I was chief. 
but in writing the old man Paul speaking to his son in the Lord. I am still the chief. I am still one who has the plague of sin that has to be dealt with. You say, oh, surely not. Romans chapter 7. Paul, in commenting about his own state upon the, the things that he battles with in his own heart, comments to the Romans and concerning his own heart, oh, wretched man that I am. Paul, really, you're saying? Yes, wretched man that I am. Who shall deliver me from the bondage of this death? And then he makes a comment, I thank God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, I am delivered from the torment and the bondage and the fear and the debilitating nature of the guilt of sin because I look to the Lord Jesus and I see in Christ the answer for everything that I would have to look at in myself and say, oh, wretched man. Luther came to the place where he saw that all the foul tricks of Satan to keep his eyes on self and rob of truth were put away by that one simple truth. The just shall live. Live how? We read it this morning in Philippians chapter 4. Rejoice. Rejoice. I can have joy because even though I can see in all honesty all these things that to my mind and my heart say, you're not saved. When I come to Jesus Christ, I find the answer from them all. Now again, I want to be absolutely plain and clear. I am not calling for someone who has not ever come to Christ never to think about this. No, your sins are yet there. You have not come to see Christ. Your heart has not evaluated who is Christ to you. You have never come to the place where you poured out your heart to the Lord, confessing sin and asking the Lord for the salvation that is in Christ Jesus. You've never come to Christ. The point that we must make from Scripture, those that come to Christ, he will not cast out. He'll not cast out. But what if I see this? Yes, you're going to see those things. Yes, they are haunting. Yes, they have voices. Yes, these things that you have that's wrong with your own heart, they are very active. And they come back to your mind in so many ways. But you and I as a child of God must be in the place where we say with Paul, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. These things that would call for me to conclude I am not saved are all false because the Lord says when I look to him, when my mind and my heart are fastened on Christ, when I look away from myself and I look to him and I place my faith in all that he is and what he has done, he answers for all this. There is, therefore, no condemnation. Again, if you're not in Christ, hear me. 
You need to take a long, hard look at your state before God. But if you are in Christ, if you've come to Christ, if you poured out your heart to the Lord, and you have said, Lord Jesus, I have come. I may not have come very intelligently, fervently, sincerely, penitently, all the things that you can attach to it, but I have come. I have come. Hear the words. I will in no wise cast out. You are going to live. But not only are you going to live, but you're going to live as one that God himself has labeled as just. How can I be just? I see all this stuff. You're just because Jesus has taken them from you. And he has imputed to you a righteousness that cannot be more perfect. So I say to you, the keynote of the Reformation is and was that we are made right and kept right before God by faith. That is, we believe that Christ is the answer for all that can be listed against me. He is the reason that I am saved. He is the reason why I am made to be what I need to be so that I can be seated with him in heavenly places. He is the reason for it all. And my place is to believe. Begone with all this nonsense from Rome. Begone of all this nonsense of Protestant penance. We need to believe the gospel. The test is not your estimation of yourself. The test is your estimation of Christ. The just shall live by faith. There is the keynote of the Reformation. Well, amen. May God bless his word to our hearts. Let's pray. Father, now we pray that you will bless what we thought on. Bless it to our hearts. Bless it for Jesus' sake. Allow it to be that which causes us to be able to walk with you in the light and rejoice. Rejoice that our sins are forgiven, that our lives are hid in Christ, that we are in the hand of God the Father and no man shall pluck us out, that the Lord Jesus gives us eternal life and we shall never perish. Oh God, let us believe in the gospel, that gospel who is a who and not a how or a why. Lord, I pray that you will seal this to our hearts this day for Jesus' sake. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.